It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is about Jacques Tratzert, a strange and deluded man who was so hell-bent on saving the world from tyranny and injustice that he started by slaughtering his family over a delightful meal. Murder Mile contains grisly details which may unnerve the easily perturbed, as well as realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 33, Jacques Adrian Tretzert, The Corner House Killer. Today, I'm standing outside Tottenham Court Road Tube Station, Exit 1 on the northeast corner of Soho. Once this was a moneyed mecca, for famished families, theatre tossers, and ferocious females who would reduce whole stores to rubble, simply to snatch one of 76 pointlessly pretty, yet fashionably painful pairs of almost identical black shoes. And yet now, it's a shithole. Surrounded by a non-stop slew of construction crews, all digging holes, smoking ciggies, and flashing a stack of sweaty bum cracks, this side of Soho has truly lost its identity. As being burdened by budget eateries, a billion buskers all playing Hey Jude, paths lined with zonked-out hobos having been booted out of Centrepoint Homeless Refuge, so the tower block can be converted into new posh flats. And the Dominium Theatre, which, without any hint of irony at all, hosts Hillsong Church in the mornings, all under a 100-foot banner for the evening's entertainment. A musical 
of Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. Featuring a gigantic, demonic image of a leather-clad Satan riding his hell-bound Harley straight into a fiery abyss. But once, the very pinnacle of Oxford Street was the Lion's Corner House. Built in 1926 by J. Lyons & Co., purveyors of female-friendly and family-orientated tea rooms. The corner house at 14 to 16 Oxford Street was the epitome of traditional values, speedy service and affordability. Set in an ornate four-storey neoclassical facade, consisting of white marble columns, stylish stone friezes and elegant steelwork, with stunning art deco interiors. Sadly, having gone out of fashion in the 1960s and closed, the Lion's Corner House on Oxford Street later reopened as the Virgin Megastore. Today it hosts Primark, a budget clothing store where you too can purchase 10 t-shirts for two quid, a pack of pants for one pound, six socks for a sixpence, as well as novelty items like a Tigger onesie, some Eor Plus Fours, and a Winnie the Pooh Moo Moo. And for the men, a small selection of either ripped jeans, dodgy hoodies, and cheap suits for either funerals or court appearances, as well as a wide selection of grey terry toweling tracksuits, so that you too can look like a Bulgarian rapist. But it was here, on the ground floor of 14 to 16 Oxford Street, in the corner house tea room of J. Lyons & Co., the 27-year-old Jacques Tretzert brutally slaughtered his family. Born on the 18th of October 1917 in Epping, Essex, Jacques-Adrien Tratzat, affectionately known as Jack, was the second eldest of six children, born to Belgian parents. Adrienne, a doting mother who raised her family in a devoutly Roman Catholic way, full of love, hope and morals, and Jean-Baptiste, a hard-working shoe stylist, who, being small, slim and sickly, battled through frequent bouts of emphysema and bronchitis to provide for his beloved family. Being the oldest boy, burdened by a great sense of responsibility, Jack cared deeply for his siblings. Anne, the youngest, who dreamt of becoming a pianist, Monica and Mary, Two strong and studious girls, keen to pursue careers in medicine. But mostly, he cared for Claire and Hugh. Although the oldest, being cursed by epilepsy, Claire was often struck down by violent seizures as her body shook fiercely, and electrical storms battered her brain, leaving her shaking and exhausted. And although a happy boy, 
with Hugh being born with cerebral palsy, his body refused to listen to his brain, which left him immobile and helpless. Thankfully, they both coped well, being cared for by a loving family. But in an era of medical ignorance, they would otherwise be institutionalised. And yet, through it all, none of the family were drinkers or druggies. They didn't steal, swear or keep secrets. There was no physical, sexual or mental abuse. They were just a very normal, very happy, very loving middle-class family, struggling to make ends meet whilst living through two world wars. They were neat, polite and happy. Their life revolved around family meals, the church, the children, their home and their education. And at the centre of it all was their beloved mother, Adrienne. Being a bookish young man, who by his mid-teens was the mirror image of his father, Jean-Baptiste. Often dressed in a practical grey suit, which hung awkwardly off his weedy frame, Jack was slim, slight and bespectacled, with a pencil-thin moustache, a receding crop of fair hair which hung around his ears like a slipped halo, and always in his hand was a book. Although insular, quiet and reflective, Jack, just like his siblings, was keen to make his mother proud. But being a solitary figure, who was more at ease dealing with paper than people, Jack channeled his energy into engineering, where he dreamed of making the world a better place for all of mankind especially for those whose lives would be hard, like his older sister Claire and his little brother Hugh. By 1936, with the British economy in recovery, having survived World War I, and Jean-Baptiste's shoe business on the up, all eight members of the Trezard family moved into 27 The Chase in Norbury, South London. A lovely, two-storey, semi-detached house in a leafy, middle-class neighbourhood. The children were well, their parents were happily married, and life couldn't get any better. And from this point onwards, it wouldn't. In fact, it would only get worse. Shortly after the New Year's celebrations in the bitter winter of 1936, 45-year-old Adrienne, the beloved wife, caring mother, an emotional core of the Tratzard family, died after a short and sudden battle with cancer leaving behind six children, the youngest of whom was just five. Being distraught, with their lives upturned and their whole world shattered, the family were racked with grief as Adrienne's casket was closed and buried in Norbury Cemetery, 
but being besotted by his mother. Jack took her death worst, and as he retreated further into isolation, he questioned his Roman Catholic faith and cursed this spiteful God who had ripped a good woman from her loving family. Desperate to provide at least some semblance of maternal support, Jean-Baptiste hired a housekeeper called Francis Eugenie Chamberlain to cook and clean for his family as they grieved. And as much as they liked her, she filled a small piece of a big hole in their lives. But for Jack, it wasn't enough. Aged 18, being fueled by bitterness, confusion and hatred, Jack went to live with relatives in Belgium, where having enrolled in the Institut Technique de Chalois to train as a draftsman and toolmaker, it was hoped that an intense period of technical study and intellectual reflection would distract Jack from his pain. But with his anger unresolved, his feelings bottled up, and his faith smashed. By the time that Jack returned to England, one year later, he was little more than an unemotional husk of a man. The second Jack's suitcase thumped onto the hall floor of his family home in Norbury, something just didn't seem right. His mother was gone. His father was there. And also were his siblings. And yet in his home was someone else. A stranger. A woman. Who looked exactly like Francis. The housekeeper his father had hired. But for some unexplicable reason... She was cooking in his dead mother's kitchen. She was sitting in his dead mother's chair. She was cuddling his dead mother's children. And she was sleeping in his dead mother's bed. Lying next to his traitorous father, who kissed and cavorted with the help. And soon enough, whether he liked it or not, his father and this woman would be married. By every account, all of Jack's siblings, whether Claire, Hugh, Monica, Mary or Anne, loved Francis to bits. Having realised that, to their widowed father, she brought love. To their shattered family, she brought hope. To their religious beliefs, she restored faith. And that, as a single woman, with no children of her own, who was suddenly thrust into the bright spotlight as the stepmother to six siblings, one of whom was epileptic and another who was physically handicapped. They all loved her, except Jack. Jack felt betrayed. By his father, by his mother, by his faith, and most of all, by God. Francis and Jean-Baptiste were married on the 10th of March, 1938, 
just one year before the start of World War II. But the biggest battle was being fought in their family home. Being insolent, argumentative and deeply antisocial, Jack could easily turn a trivial matter into a full-scale fight, simply to prove himself right and his father and Francis wrong. Whether that concerned Claire's epilepsy, which Jack was certain limited her chance of leading a happy life, whether as a worker, a married woman or a mother. Whether that concerned Hugh's cerebral palsy, which Jack was positive, meant that his helpless, hopeless and drooling baby brother had zero chance of ever living a full life. And yet, the biggest concern for the Trazart family was Jack's own mental decline. In August 1938, shortly after his mother's death, with Jack being struck down with a fit of depression and gripped by lengthy bouts of insomnia, Claire suggested that Jack see a psychologist. To please her, he did. But after just one session with Dr. Kenny of Harley Street, Jack stopped, believing it wouldn't accomplish anything, and having felt a sense of superiority over this so-called specialist. Being angry, right down to his very bones, at this spiteful god who had murdered his beloved mother, Jack's main point of contention with his devout Roman Catholic father and Francis was religion. At first, Jack simply refused to attend Mass, which, as a petty, immature man in his early 20s, his father put down as a belated teenage tantrum. Next, having denied the existence of God, Jack tried to turn Claire and Hugh, his physically impaired siblings who God had denied a good life, against Catholicism, much to his father's chagrin. And having purposely purchased any book that the church had deemed too blasphemous, solely to antagonise his father, with their relationship already strained, although they lived in the same house, they soon descended to communicating by written letter. But it was the inclusion of derogatory remarks made against Francis which finally tipped his father over the edge. And although he was a truly patient and caring man, he asked Jack to leave. By the outbreak of World War II, as London was engulfed in flames, as Nazi bombers rained down fire from the skies, and the rest of the Tratzard family were evacuated to the safety of Northampton, Jack moved into a solitary bedsit at 1265B London Road, not far from the family home in Norbury. By day, he worked in silent contemplation as a draftsman at Tickle and Veniard Precision Toolmakers, sketching and muttering. 
as his concerned colleagues shunned this strange young man. But by night, he retreated further into solitude, sleeping very little, eating even less, as his body was consumed by a lethal mix of insomnia, depression, and insanity. And here he stayed for five long years. Although cramped and sparse, over those years, when Jack wasn't dragging his bed across the floor and slamming doors at ungodly hours, either he could be found cowering inside a homemade air raid shelter which covered half of his tiny room, as he scrawled on scraps of paper the secrets of how to rebuild the world. Or he'd be ensconced in a cupboard which he'd converted into his own personal workshop, inside of which he concocted harebrained schemes to help him survive what he believed was the impending Armageddon. In 1939, when Jack moved into the bedsit, he was polite, quiet and neat. By the end of 1944, after years of isolation and no medication, Jack had become a ragged, rambling mess, whose mental decline was so acute, even the sound of his own violin caused him to hurl himself out of a third-story window in what would become the first of many ill-fated suicide attempts. Two months later, Jack bought a gun. In November 1944, fearing for her safety, with Jack having been arrested and briefly institutionalised in a local mental hospital for smashing up his workplace at Tickle and Veniard, his landlady, Mrs Winifred May Shrubsell, politely asked her wild-eyed lodger to move out. And with that, Jack returned to the broken and boarded-up shell of his childhood home at number 27 The Chase in Norbury. 1945 was a year of hope. The German forces were in retreat. The Nazi high command was in total disarray. And slowly, British families were returning to the bombed-out remnants of their cities to salvage what was left of their homes, their lives and their loved ones. One of whom was Jean-Baptiste. For the first time in six years, 27-year-old Jack and his father, 58-year-old Jean-Baptiste, were in the same room together. But 1945 truly was a time of peace. And with his stepmother, Frances, wanting nothing to do with Jack whatsoever, this gave the two men a chance to talk. And as they painted the walls, unclogged the pipes, and sanded the floors, so that once again this house would become a family home. Although they said very little, they never fought. 
sensing a need for family unity. With Francis unwilling to join them, Jean-Baptiste suggested that he and his children all meet up for a delightful meal at Lion's Corner House on Oxford Street. Jack agreed. But for him, this wasn't just a dinner. This was his destiny. Two days prior, Jack sold off his personal possessions to Cecil Reginald Smith, a co-worker at Tickle and Veniard, including all of his clothes, his books, his furniture, and the tools from his workshop. Everything, except a drab grey suit, a notebook, and a gun. Jack never gave a reason why, and Cecil never asked. Friday the 20th of April 1945 should have been a time for celebration. The Soviet army had surrounded Berlin. Goering and Himmler had fled. Mussolini's neck was being fitted for a noose. And Adolf Hitler was just ten days away from committing suicide. And soon, the war would be over, the blackout would be cancelled, peace would return, and the jubilant bell, known as Big Ben, would ring across the smouldering city of London for the first time in almost 2,000 days. But before that, there would be death. By 5pm, six members of the Tratzart family were all seated around a white linen table amidst the Art Deco splendour of the ground floor tea room of the Lion's Corner House. With her stepmother, Frances, back in Northampton, and sisters Monica and Mary still serving overseas, the family chatted excitedly as an endless procession of cakes, biscuits and buns flashed before their very eyes as the super-speedy waitresses, known as nippies, zipped by in a rush of sweet air, a blur of black and white pennies, and the long-forgotten smell of fruit, ham and marzipan. Sat on one side of the table, to the left was 29-year-old eldest sister Claire, who'd gone three months without a seizure, and her life was looking up, having found work as an orderly at the University College Hospital. In the middle was 13-year-old Anne, the youngest of six and an eager scholar at the local convent. And to the right was Auntie Claire, sister to their dear departed mother. On the other side sat their father, Jean-Baptiste, excited to have his babies back together. In the middle was 17-year-old Hugh, confined to a wheelchair, but eternally happy in his own little world. And to the right was Jack. With his drab grey suit all ruffled, his halo of hair unkempt, 
and a deep dark set of bags underscoring his bloodshot eyes. Jack sat with his back deliberately to the wall, saying nothing and eating nothing, just fiddling with a small black Smith and Wesson revolver in his lap, trying to decide who to kill first. The gun's chamber held eight bullets. Without reloading, he could shoot all of them. But then again, he had no beef with Auntie Claire, who he loved like he loved his own mother. And with Anne being so young, his one regret was that she would live to see all of them die. But if he was going to bring an eternal peace to the family, it was now or never. Of the eight bullets, two were for Claire, two were for Dad, two were for Hugh, and two were for Jack. So his sweet sister, Claire, who God had cursed, was first. Amidst the noisy chatter as his excited family caught up on lost time, Gripping the flat black revolver in his right hand, at eye height, Jack aimed the barrel across the white linen table. His sights lined up to hit Claire squarely in her epileptic head. And as he slowly squeezed the trigger, nothing. No bang. No scream. No death. Confused, Jack tried again. Nothing, and then again. Still nothing. Luckily, nobody had noticed, except Hugh, who sat there, aimlessly grinning, as if the gun was a toy and this was playtime. Hiding it in his lap, his family oblivious, Jack sat there, cursing the Canadian sailor who'd sold him this piece of shit. Ten minutes later, he tried again. Nothing. No smoke. No blood. No brains. Only this time, everybody saw Jack with the gun in his hand, feverishly clicking the trigger. His sights aimed at his sister's head. But believing it was just one of Hugh's water pistols, Jack was lightly warned against squirting his family with tea. During the meal, and with that, he popped the lethal weapon back under the table. Again, Jack fumed. His meticulous plan, having gone to pot, having been sold a shitty shooter by some salty sea dog who'd slinked off with his fiver. Under the linen tablecloth, he discreetly fiddled with a faulty firearm. Yanking this, and tugging that, unsure what he was doing, having never held it or fired it before. But it was then that he heard the hammer go click. With this being his third and last chance, Jack lined the revolver sights at his sister's eyes, squeezed the trigger tight, and. 
With a muzzle flash, a puff of smoke and a deafening bang, Claire spun 90 degrees in her seat as a 38 calibre bullet burst a penny-sized hole in her forehead, burrowing a deep channel through her soft grey brain and blasting out the base of her skull with a bloody thump. Being slumped in her seat, Jack fired again. A single shot ripped open the back of her head, coating the cake and tea-covered table in brain matter and blood as the bullet embedded into her left ear. The cafe was in chaos, as a bottleneck of terrified patrons scrambled to dash out of the double doors into Oxford Street. But Jack heard none of this, and he saw none of this. Instead, as Claire's lifeless body lay sprawled across the table, and her open skull oozed down the white linen tablecloth. As Jack pointed the smoking gun at his father's face, Jean-Baptiste raised his hand in defence. A blistering hot bullet split the middle fingers of his right hand, and with the lightning-quick lead still having enough velocity to rip apart his left cheek, it smashed his left jawbone burst out of his neck, slashed his jugular vein and embedded itself deep into his shoulder bone. Slumping backwards in his seat, Jack fired again. Splitting open a gaping wound behind his father's right ear, which blasted out of the top of his head and showered everyone within ten feet in a fine mist of hot, sticky mess. And in his last few moments alive, his father said nothing. He simply rattled and rasped as he breathed. And then there was Hugh. Dear, sweet, innocent Hugh his smiling face, his cheeky grin, and his oblivious eyes, as eager to send his beloved but broken brother to a happier place, Jack swung the gun at Hugh's befuddled face, and at point-blank range, he fired twice. With Auntie Claire safely huddling under the blood-soaked table, with his terrified sister Anne, and his mission accomplished. Being eager to finally find his own peace, Jack placed the hot steel barrel of the gun to his temple, shut his eyes, and with a quick tug of the trigger, nothing. He tried again. Nothing. He slammed the revolver on the table. Still nothing. And realising that the chamber was empty, Jack hurled the hapless handgun up into a glass chandelier. Only to spy, about the crimson pool of blood at his feet, two tiny silver objects glinting. As having previously feverishly fumbled with a faulty firearm under the table, 
In his anger, he'd accidentally ejected two of the eight thirty-eight caliber bullets. But by then, it was too late. Being unarmed and weighing barely nine stone, Jack was rushed by a stout but sturdy soldier, as well as several waiters. And as they bundled the surprisingly silent and serene spree killer into a side parlour to await the police, as Jack turned to witness the bloody aftermath of his violent massacre, amongst a bloody mess of skin, hair, and teeth, in the briefest of moments. He swore that he saw his brother's eyes blink. Fifty-eight-year-old widower and father of six, Jean Baptiste, was admitted to Middlesex Hospital, but died five minutes later. Twenty-nine-year-old Claire died at the scene, as a Catholic priest prayed for her life. And Hugh, dear sweet. Innocent Hugh, the ever smiling, ever happy, seventeen-year-old boy cursed with cerebral palsy, who had been blasted twice in the face at point-blank range with thirty-eight caliber bullets. He survived. Maybe it was fate, maybe it was luck, or maybe, having shattered his jawbone and right cheek, that same god. Who had plagued Jack's baby brother with wobbly limbs and an incomplete brain, had guided both bullets to miraculously miss every vital nerve, vein, and artery, so that after just a short stay in hospital, Hugh went home. He lived a good life, and died in July 1988. He was 61 years old. Anne escaped unscathed, and to the best of my knowledge, she's still alive, aged 82 years old. Frances remained a devoted stepmother to Anne, Hugh, Mary, and Monica. She died in 1966, aged 71. And Jack, on the 28th of May 1945, Jacques Adrien Tretzat. Was tried at the Old Bailey on two counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, and one count of attempted suicide. And although he'd pleaded not guilty, he was deemed unfit to stand trial, found guilty by reasons of insanity, and was detained at Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital at His Majesty's pleasure. On the thirtieth of May, nineteen forty-seven. The ever restless, ever angry, and ever anxious Jack finally found peace with a vein and a shard of glass. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Stay tuned to Extra Mile after the break. And a big thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who get exclusive access to secret Murder Mile content, as well as a personal thank you from me. They are Christian Diaz, Jessica Gore, Anita Finlayson, Jennifer Sweeter, Nicola Batalana, 
Shane Bradwell and Katrina Hennessy. With a special thank you this week to Lizzie and Sophie at Acast. Thank you, guys. You are all ace. God, I sound so 80s. Murder Mar was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. 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 Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back to Extra Mile. Um, If you're a new listener to Extra Mile, you're probably going, what the hell is this? I don't understand. Uh, This is Extra Mile. So this is a section of the show where I kind of go into greater detail about the episode itself. It's not compulsory. You don't have to listen to it if you don't want to. uh, But it's kind of a, a nice counterbalance to the story. But in here, it's all unscripted. Um, There's no music, there's no sound effects, uh, there's loads of mistakes, which I kind of like. Um, But what we do is I I, I sit down and just go through the episode that we've just uh, listened to. Um, So, welcome back, uh, regular listeners. Uh, Extra Mile is back, as always. Um, This was an interesting episode to record. Uh, That that was the third time I've recorded that episode and this Extra Mile. Um, obviously I've taken a month off to, uh, meant to be re- resting, actually I was researching, I had, t- I had a 10 minute rest, I woke up on the first day, I was like, oh no murder mile today, and after 10 minutes I was so bored, I had to go back to the National Archive and was just like, right, pull out some files, I, I just, I'm not very good at sitting down, so, uh, 
I've been spent the last month researching all these great cases for season two, uh, including this one that you just listened to. Uh, but obviously, I'd forgotten uh, how to record a podcast. I really had. Like, I've still got the same equipment. I've got my laptop in front of me. I have a uh, black Yeti microphone, which looks like the kind of thing you might find in a sex shop. Yeah, uh, have a look online. I've posted a picture. It really does. Um, with a, a little filter in front of it, a little pop filter, so you don't hear me go make horrible popping sounds. But to, as you know, listener to this, I'm always burdened by the fact that because I record on a boat, there's cars going past, there's planes flying over, there's lots of noise, there's coots outside, and you know, lots of birds, and oh, it's so frustrating. So I decided to build myself a little recording studio. Well, really, just a noise filter, really. Uh, and obviously, because I don't make any money, really, off Murder Mile, I make a little bit, courtesy of the lovely people on Patreon. Thank you very much. Uh, and a new initiative that is helping me make a little bit at the moment. Uh, what I decided to do was make my own kind of soundproof booth. Uh, obviously, I haven't got money to do it. So I, I, I got a shoebox and I filled it full of sponge. <laughs> uh, if you go to uh, the Murder Mile uh, True Crime Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook or my Instagram account, which is can uh, all of the links are in the show notes here, you'll see what it looks like. It doesn't look great, but you know what? It helps. Um, but the reason why I've recorded this three times is the first time I'd forgotten how to set up my microphone. So I plugged it all in and then I sat and recorded all of this and then... Uh, I'd forgotten to select the microphone on my laptop. So it was recording through the... Excuse me, I'm just burping. See, that would be recorded out. Uh, That would be edited out, but uh, not in Extra Mile. That's against the rules. Um, I'd forgotten how to set... Uh, press the button that says select this microphone so it was going through the internal microphone on the laptop which is awful so it sounded really awful so i i was like i couldn't i you know it doesn't sound good i can't go ahead with the episode so i had to re-record it so i put it inside my new box that i created and i did a little test and it sounded it sounded pretty good so i re-recorded episode part one again episode one all again uh which was a two-hour record and then I sat down this morning ready to edit it and I was just like, it sounds horrible. It doesn't sound as bad as before, but it, it you know, when you compare it to the old episodes, it had a kind of a dull, hollow quality, which I really hated. And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't put this episode out. Um, so I came back, I've moved the box slightly away, uh, the microphone's there and I, I, hopefully this sounds really good now. But yeah, this is the third time I've recorded that episode and Extra Mile. But you know what? I've I've I've, I've enjoyed. It was a good record. Uh, there wasn't a lot of mistakes, and I flew through most of the sentences, which is good for me because um, obviously I stutter a lot and I'm dyslexic. Uh, so uh, that went really well, actually. So uh, I think I'll do that from now on. I'll just keep uh, rehearsing these lines before I record. Uh, so um, this episode. Uh, the story about Jacques Adrian Tratzett, known as known as Jack. Uh, I kind of stumbled across this case by mistake, really. Um, when I was researching the Blackout Ripper series, obviously the first murderer... Ah, uh, the first murderer, what am I talking about? The first victim of the Blackout Ripper was Evelyn Hamilton? Evelyn Margaret Hamilton, yeah, who was murdered in the air raid shelter in Montague Place. You can tell it's been a couple of months, I can't remember all that. Uh, and 
On her 41st birthday that night, she went to the Lion's Corner house in Marble Arch, which was known as Maison Lyonnaise. Now, on both bookends of both sides of Oxford Street are were two Lion's Corner houses. So you got Maison Lyonnaise on Marble Arch, and you got uh, the Lion's Corner house, Oxford Street one, on the corner by Tottenham Court Road tube station. Uh, so as I was researching about Lion's uh, Maison Lyonnaise and the Lion's Corner houses, because you, you know what I'm like, I like to know, I can't just say someone walked into such and such building. I hate when people do that, especially newspapers and books. It's, it's lazy writing. It's like uh, he walked into his house. What was the house like? It tells you a lot about a person. Um, so... Do you know, it's nice to know that these were kind of family-friendly places, uh, especially during the war where there was rationing going on, there was speedy service, uh, there was lots of cakes being served. It was nice to know that it wasn't basic and bare. It was kind of, it looked opulent, but it was relatively affordable for people. It was a, a really, really revolutionary kind of uh, place was the Lion's Corner Houses. So doing research into that, there was a little reference in there that someone was murdered in one of the corner houses. You know me, I'm like, I hear the word murder and London, or especially Soho or West End, I'm in. Um, so uh, there was very little on, online. There was very little uh, in the in the press uh, reports, in the newspapers. You know me, I don't like using press reports anyway, because half of the time they're incorrect. Uh, and are based on the uh, uh, press release by by uh, kind of Reuters and AP Wire, which normally is incorrect at the start, and journalists tend not to correct it as they go along. There are some good journalists out there, but unfortunately there's a lot of hacks who work to a very tight deadline, and they don't have time for accuracy anymore. Very bad. Um, so yeah, I pulled out the original declassified police investigation file on the case. Um, knew nothing about it, just knew a name. Uh, I knew that it was a, a, they said a boy, but really he wasn't a boy, he was 27 years old, who'd uh, murdered his family there. And for me, I was like, that's interesting. Pulled out the case file and thought, yeah, I really love this. There's a lot going on. You've got, especially learning that it was a, uh, his sister had epilepsy, his brother had cerebral palsy, which they didn't know much about, so epilepsy or cerebral palsy in that era. Especially the palsy, it was really misregarded. When you go through uh, Hugh's notes, especially his medical notes, which are in the file, all they really say is he's a backwards boy who uh, who has very little use of his arms. So it was actually going through that, I had to work out what his diagnosis was luckily i've got friends who are doctors and they were able to pin down exactly what it was for me and i thought it was pulled cerebral palsy anyway um so really interesting case i learned a lot about the family which you know i love i love learning about the family first getting a full information about their lives to work out why he did what he did he did give quite a few statements to the police he gave three in fact about why he did it but all of them are post-murder obviously and the more I read them, the more I kind of felt that he wasn't really, he hadn't really justified it right in his head. So he was kind of justifying it post-murder. Kind of some of the details changed as they went along. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's a fascinating case. So um, for this section of murder mile murder mile extra mile. See, that would be edited out as well. Not an extra mile. Uh, I thought I'd let you into a couple of secrets. So there was a couple of things that I couldn't put into the episode, not because I deliberately wanted to uh, leave it out, uh, 
to, to be clever or something like that. It's just sometimes there are details in a story. When you're trying to tell a coherent, linear story, what you don't want to do is have things coming in and out that really throw you off. So these are the things that I didn't put into the story, but this is just for you. For those of you who've waited for now, here's some, here's some really interesting things. So, as you know, Jack's revolver uh, held eight shots. Two, which were going to be for Claire... Two for Hugh, two for his dad, and two to kill himself. Um, or what he really said was one. Really, he said one, one for me and one spare. I think you know, just in case he fucked up, um, which makes sense. Um, now, obviously, when he went to pull the gun on himself, to the it, the chamber was empty. He'd accidentally. Uh, discharged two of the shells on the floor which he hadn't realised until it was too late until he'd thrown the gun away up into a chandelier which is high up on the wall uh, if you go to the um, Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group or my blog on MurderMileTours.com or any of my social media accounts I'll put uh, po original crime scene photos uh, on the website on there so you can have a look at what it looks like but the chandelier is kind of it's on a column and it's up high on the column so he couldn't have reached it a policeman had to get on a chair to get go and get it uh but jack said he didn't he kind of accidentally ejected the bullets so he couldn't kill himself here's a little th secret uh, jack had in his left pocket of his jacket 18 more bullets so he definitely had more bullets to kill himself. Even though his gun was empty, he had time to do it. Uh, now, either he forgot this, or he had no desire to kill himself at all. Maybe this desire to kill himself was a big show in front of him, in front of everyone, because he knew he got a crowd. He got some of his family. Uh, I'm having a swig of coke. Oh dear, that's disgusting. Uh, he got some of his family who were still alive, like Auntie Claire and Anne, who gave a big, a, a very detailed account of what happened to the police. So what I'm wondering is, did he deliberately eject those two bullets onto the floor? Because of the guns I was looking at, they never stated what type of gun it was. They said it was Smith and Weston Black Flat, thirty-eight caliber. I they weren't able to define exactly what type, but I haven't been able to find a gun which automatically ejected so what i'm suggesting is that maybe he tipped it maybe he tipped it backwards and they fell out accidentally or he deliberately took them out um so that's a little secret that's just there for you to to work out uh, do with it what you will but um yeah i'm still under the decision of whether jack wanted to kill himself or not or whether he just cocked up something else that's quite interesting as well um, obviously I've mentioned that he sold all of his possessions to Cecil uh, Smith, Cecil Reginald Smith, which I had to re-edit, uh, re-record on this because I accidentally realised I said Cyril Smith. And to anyone who's British will know that Cyril Smith was a 1980s very fat Lancastrian MP who is now dead, who uh, is widely regarded to be uh, one of Britain's worst paedophiles. Um, not as bad as Jimmy Savile. If you're an American, Google Jimmy Savile, whatever you do. S-A-V, I, I think S-A-V-I-L-E or S-A-V-I-L-L. -L. Jimmy Savile, widely regarded as one of Britain's worst paedophiles and a TV presenter from the 1980s who was knighted and members of the uh, Catholic faith, wa faith wanted to turn him into a saint, a living saint. 
and he was a convict and he was a paedophile and we never knew that uh, there's also word that he was a uh, a necrophile as well anyway I digress uh, <laughs> I do that a lot that's what I do in Extra Mile so um, Jack had sold off all of his stuff to a guy called Cecil Smith who he worked with at Tickle and Veniard lovely name I love that Tickle and Veniard the um, um, the um, precision tool makers who we work for now he sold off all of his stuff his clothes his furniture his tools to Cecil for 50 pounds uh, two days just before he was going to commit these murders and the suicide he so obviously he believed that he was going to kill himself but there were two things that he said specifically that he wasn't selling and that they were to be left for members of his family so one was to Anne his youngest sister who survived he left his turntable and records, vinyl records, which makes sense. She loved music, so and he was into classical as well. So that makes a lot of sense. And secondly, more bafflingly, he was leaving behind his coffee percolator for his father, Jean-Baptiste. Which suggests that he didn't want to murder his father. It's kind of confusing. He did say that he, uh, the murder, even though he hated his father, the murder of his father was a last-minute decision. And here's another thing that I deliberately left out of the story, just because it slowed it down a lot. When they were taking the bus and the tube from Norbury, so Hugh, Jack, Anne and Jean-Baptiste were taking the tube and bus from Norbury to get into town. They went to Leicester Square. They did some did some shopping. Uh, they, they had some lunch, and then they were going to meet the family at five o'clock. So they had a nice day out. On the journey in, Jack turned to Anne and said, "How's your piano lessons going?" And Jack said, "Yeah, they're going really good. I just wish I had more time for it." And Jack was like, "Why?" And Anne was like, "Well, you know, I have a lot of schoolwork to do, and Dad's given me a lot of chores." Which makes sense, he's a loving father, but he wants his daughter to have a good education before she focuses on uh, what would probably be regarded as a hobby. Jack, I know a lot of musicians out there uh, will be going, what? This is, music is a career, and it is. It's like it's like me saying that podcasting isn't a career. For me, it is. Well, it is now. Um, but yeah, his dad didn't, his dad was kind of a practical man, even though he was a, sh a shoe designer. Some people say he was really, really just a shoe agent. Um... But, yeah, that's one of the reasons that Jack said that he wanted to kill his father. He, it was a last-minute decision to kill his father because he knew that Anne would have a better life if his dad wasn't there. Which doesn't make sense because he was really the breadwinner. He was the one earning the money. Which is baffling. So, anyway, I left those out deliberately. They slowed down the story. But those are just for you, the, uh, the good listeners of Extra Mile. Um, so... We haven't I, we haven't done an extra mile for about a month, uh, so I thought we'd fill fill you in on a couple of things. Probably on one of the last episodes that we were uh, we did on the Blackout Ripper in Extra Mile, I mentioned very excitedly that Murder Mile had been nominated for the Best True Crime Podcast of 2018. <gasps> Fantastic! That was at the British Podcast Awards uh, back in May. Uh, very exciting! I was uh, thrilled to be nominated. There were five nominees in the category. Uh, myself they walk among us fabulous podcast run by ben and rosie uh widely regarded as one of the biggest and best true crime podcasts out there and rightfully so they work really hard and they're really lovely as well which uh which helps a lot as well if they were really nasty god that would, god yeah i don't think people would listen to it but they're really nice people as well uh and also uh slafter 
run by Lucy and Emma, who are really lovely, and two BBC uh, podcasts, Reasonable Doubt and The Assassination. Uh, those of you who know, uh, I was made redundant about five years ago by the BBC. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to be up against my old uh, employer slash adversaries. Nah, they're not adversaries, just having a giggle. Uh, but So that was really interesting. Uh, the awards were on Saturday the 19th of May at King's Place, which is kind of a new, relatively new theatre in King's Cross. Turned up, uh, met there with Ben and Rosie from They Walk Among Us and uh, Lucy and Emma from Slafter and the lovely people at Acast. Uh, so I met with them, had free drinks, which was uh, really lovely. Uh, I was slightly nervous, so I was double fisting two bottles of Heineken at the same time. Uh, ben and Rosie were already on the shots. It was only six in the afternoon, six in the evening. But do you know what? It's free booze. We're having fun. And I got to meet lovely people at ACAST there, especially Sophie and uh, Lizzie, who was already a big fan of Murder Mile already. And it was a delight to meet uh, Lizzie. And do you know what? She really helped calm me down a bit because I was a little bit jumpy, a bit nervous going into the awards. Anyway... This was happened at the wards. We went into the theatre. It was all very exciting. Lots of free drinks. Lots of podcast fans and podcasters. And nice to chat with people as well. Um, we were called into the room because the awards were about to start. It was eight o'clock. Uh, me, Ben and Rosie walked in and we were like, OK, where do we sit? And I, I said to one of the ushers, because I've worked a lot of awards before. I've worked them for like the last 18 years. I, I said, uh, where do we sit? Because we're nominees. Knowing that the nominees should be on the ground floor near the front. And they went, oh, your ground floor, ground floor, uh, you've got seats. So we went down, we had a look at the seats um, and we couldn't work out where we'd sit. So I asked another usher and I said, uh, we're nominees. Do we sit in a specific seat? And they went, yeah, the nominees have uh, names on their seats. So I had a look at all the seats. There were three rows, which was about 30 seats, which didn't make sense because I swore that there was about 70 or 80 nominees. And I looked and I went, Okay, there's Craig Parkinson, there's Fern Cotton, there's all these fa- relatively famous names. So I was like, where's, I couldn't find our seats. So I spoke to another another usher and said, oh, we're nominees, do we have seats? And they went, oh, uh, no, only famous people have seats. Other nominees have to sit elsewhere. But by that point, all the seats are gone. So me, Ben and Rosie sat, uh, we stood at the back of the hall, just to the left, uh, if if you uh, go onto any of my social media platforms, you'll see pictures of us, three nominees, standing up at the back, unable to get any seats. Anyway, it was a really good night, it was really good fun. I actually enjoyed standing up because it gave us a better view and there was good sound. Um, and this is what happens. So uh, they go through all the awards, different awards, and obviously they get to the True Crime uh, Podcast Awards, which is the important one. All the others, meh, who cares, meh, comedy, entertainment, sport, meh. People want the True Crime Podcast one. So you get to that one, and what they do is they uh, get someone on stage and they announce all the nominees, and they went, obviously all the nominees are uh, They Walk Among Us, Slafter, Reasonable Doubt, The Assassination, and Murder Mile. Obviously a big applause for Murder Mile. I'd love to say that. It didn't really happen. There was a smattering. Um, And then what they do is they don't announce the order of all five. They announce the top three. So they miss two and they go, right, uh, bronze, silver, gold. It was very exciting. So we were sitting there. We'd actually just got someone had vacated. We got some seats by that point. We were sitting down. It was uh, me, Rosie, then Ben. And the the ladies from Slafter with their boyfriends were immediately behind us. And we were like, okay, this is really exciting. And they went, uh, and the bronze place goes to. They walk among us. 
big round of applause. We all turned to Ben and Rose. We said, well done. And we were like, what had happened that night is I was just happy to be nominated. I didn't really suspect, I didn't think that I was going to win at all. Um, so everyone kept saying, oh, this is your year. This is, you're definitely going to win this year. Even Ben and Rosie were. They were like, we know, we're not going to win, but we know you're definitely going to win. And I was like, it's nice to say, but it's not going to happen at all. It really isn't. Uh, so anyway, they announced They Walk Among Us in, in the Bronze Award. And I turned to them and they were like, oh, see, you're going to win. We know you're going to win. And I was like, ah, it's not going to happen. But they were like, no, 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 there's ours. They'll put in a BBC one and then it'll be you. Because obviously they have to put in one of the big BBC ones because, you know, they pay a lot of money. Actually, uh, that's probably not true. I just threw that in. Fuck that. If their lawyers are listening, fuck that. Right. So uh, then they announced Silver Place and they went, the Silver Award goes to Reasonable Doubt. And that's one of the BBC ones. And we were like, oh, God, reasonable doubt. And then Ben and Rosie were like, see, see, it's definitely you. It's definitely you. And I could hear uh, kind of uh, Lucy and Emma behind going, it's definitely you as well. I was like, no, 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 no. So it's literally the gold award was between myself, Slafter and the assassination. And they came out and they said, and the gold winner. And by this point, obviously, my heart's in my mouth. My heart's pumping in my mouth. And my bum hole is spackling. I'm trying to hold in a little bit of wee because I've drank a little bit too much. And I'm very nervous. I'm like, oh, God, if I do, they do call me up. I hope I don't wee on stage, which would be really embarrassing. I'm sure we've all done it before. And they went, the winner. And they didn't just say the name. They went, the judges describe this podcast as. And what I'll do at, at the end of this episode, at the end of Extra Mile, I'll sh- the, is, is the whole clip of that bit i recorded it i'll put it in for you the sound's not very good because i recorded it on my iphone uh but you can hear it whole going through and you could you can just about hear us as well and they went the judges described this podcast as and then they went through a little like two-line description of the podcast and it was like it sounded exactly like murder mile i was like oh my god it's gonna happen oh my god what do I do and I was like oh shit really excited and my heart was pounding and I could even hear even hear like the guys next to me all going it's you it's you it's definitely you we know it's going to be you and then they went and the winner is long pause the assassination and yeah all of a sudden, just the, it's almost like the, all the air went out of the room. I didn't expect to win, but everything was leading up to that point, thinking, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, and then I just didn't win. But you know what? It really wasn't about winning. It was That was such a fantastic night. I was incredibly honoured to be nominated. Uh, my goal next year is to either get bronze, silver, and gold. I intend to keep progressing and keep doing better and better episodes and just make sure I win next year that's going to be a goal or at least get nominated again uh it was a fantastic night and the great thing was not only did I get to hang out with Ben and Rosie and Lucy and Emma and meet loads of other podcasters and we we all had a really good giggle that night and got really pissed and I did a tour in the morning next morning I woke up with a hangover did a tour I was fantastic I'm really good when I'm hungover uh but at the awards that night I got to meet uh, I got to meet the lovely people at Acast, who are uh, their uh, uh, podcast hosts, but also they uh, help set they they set up uh, advertisers for the podcast as well, and they're, they're really fantastic. There's there's I've held off from putting uh, adverts on my podcasts, um, just because I I don't 
I didn't feel the podcast was big enough to do it yet. Sorry, I got burps. And also, there's a lot of shysters out there, a lot of people who try and lure you in. Uh, one of whom, I won't mention their name, was uh, it, it was an ongoing joke during the awards. It was mentioned on stage quite a few times because uh, there's one big company out there who are just shysters. Uh, but luckily, Acast are amazing. They're really good. They're really they're really positive, and they're really good at pushing the podcast forward and making it trying to make it some money. So I'm, I'm, I met with them. They're really lovely. So um, they've got me on board now. We've uh, we've joined forces, if that's the word. So uh, if you're British, you've probably noticed that there's adverts at the front and at the back and in the middle. Um, now this may happen in America soon. I think Acast are trying to get. American, uh, you know, uh, American listeners to accept adverts. Uh, I think America is more kind of a um, you're talking and then you turn around and go, oh, oh, um, do you like meals? And like doing a your own version, which uh, we kind of in Britain we don't like that. There, we don't like our host telling us that we have to listen. We have to, you know, buy some kind of mattress. In America, it works better. In Britain, we kind of just like adverts because you can switch off. Uh, or you can buy the products, which I hope you buy the products. <sighs> Got out of that one quick. Uh, anyway, so um, in Britain, we're going to there are going to be adverts on the on the show. Uh, but what I've deliberately done is I've made proper spaces in the show. So the old episodes will all have adverts in them, um, but it won't be like some epi- some uh, some podcasts that you listen to. One of my particular favourite ones is an advert right in the middle of a bloody word. They haven't done it right. It's middle of a sentence, middle of a word. So what I've done is I've used the adverts. I've re-gone through, uh, I've re-volumed them because uh, a listener very kindly on the American uh, iTunes. I read all of the re- reviews. Thank you to everyone who leaves reviews. And very kindly, they loved the podcast, but they did say some of the episodes are a little bit quiet. So I've gone through. It took me a bloody long time. I re-volumed all 34 episodes so they're all about 20% louder now. So hopefully that's a bit better. All the new episodes will be of a higher volume as well. So you won't need to fiddle with it. Um, but what I've done is I've also... Uh, in the old episodes, I've I've made uh, spaces for the adverts, which are cliffhangers. But also I've kind of... Uh, in the new ones, hopefully it's worked with this episode, is that I've made a very specific space for the advert. So it doesn't mess up the story. Because that's the worst thing for me. For me, that's a priority one: is storytelling and characters, and making a really enjoyable podcast that people like. And like fifth on the list is advertising and making money. And if I feel that the adverts are intrusive or detrimental to the story, then they just go. That's it. They're they're gone. I'll find another way to make money out of this uh, in order to survive. But yeah, no. If 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 the adverts uh, are intrusive, they will just go. Um, so that's an exciting update. I'll hopefully start making a little bit of money uh, so I can actually survive. Um, at the moment, I'm surviving on my tours and uh, the walking tours and are very kind Patreon supporters, uh, which is great. Um, so um, what have I learned off uh, season one? I thought I put that in there, uh, which is helping me to uh, shape season two. Listen to all the old episodes, uh, obviously, because I was re-voluming, re-voluming all of the old episodes. Uh, and it's interesting see- hearing how the st- how the style has progressed. I think I've calmed down with my voice, especially with this one. You'll hear that Blackout Ripper really helped. Having, I'm learning to just go 
Not not to go through and like this, and my voice is a bit high because I'm a bit eager. It's kind of keep it keep it in a a kind of a tone about about here, keep it a resonance there, as I think it makes it more calming. And you know, when I need to, I can increase the volume a bit in my voice. But there, it's going to be kind of a that's going to be the volume from now on for Murdmile. Uh, I think it works better for the storytelling, and also it's clearer for people as well uh, to listen to. So uh, I learnt a lot from uh, season one. Um, I think I learnt a lot with the Blackout Ripper as well. That was really interesting. Obviously, I'd done two parters before with Dennis Nielsen and Ginger Ray. Um, Blackout Ripper originally was just going to be a four-parter. Uh, I, en- I loved writing those episodes about the, the, his four victims. I think those were the two st- four strongest episodes. Um, obviously, there was a lot of information. The first time this story has really been told properly uh it's told if you have a look on the wikipedia page for a blackout ripper it is shit and i refuse to update it because it's just like it's so full of shit from wrong places so go on there have a look what i've done is is my episodes are from the original case files it's the truth it's not the tabloid bullshit that is on the wikipedia page but what i worked out with blackout ripper was i kind of I think I was getting tired by episode five. I was kind of losing the plot. Uh, it as, and also I realised for you guys. Obviously, you're listening to eight episodes. So, but if I put in a narrative thread, because obviously all the threads kind of merge together. Um, if I put in like, like something like the handkerchief in episode one, uh, which was found in the air raid shelter, that comes back in episode five or six. But I'd realised that you're having to wait like six weeks. That's a month and a half. And by that time, you've probably listened to two or three hundred other episodes. So getting you to remember all that was probably a bit of a nightmare. Um, But it works well as a single episode. So I've actually put out the Blackout Ripper episode... I've stripped out all the extra mile. I've stripped out all the admin. It's It was the last two episodes that went out. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't, couldn't put them out as one episode because it was five hours and 18 minutes long and it broke the internet. It literally broke the internet. So I had to split it into two chunks. But it's two four-part episodes and really good feedback from people who've listened to it. They've listened to it back to back and they've gone, it all makes sense. It's like I, all of a sudden all these pieces that they forgot about all tie together. Um, but I think that will be the last time I'll do anything as big as an eight-parter. I think from now on, uh, what I'm going to do is maximum two or three-parter. I think that's the best way to do it. And also, uh, season two is probably going to be 20 episodes in this season, not 34 like I did with season one. Uh, I know I was desperate to get to 40 because it's a round number, but, oh, God, by... I think... Yeah, I I think I'd lost... I was exhausted. Um, so yeah, I'm going to keep it to twenty. Uh, the quality. I'm going to keep the quality high. I'm going to focus just on cases where there's a bit of an emotional angle because that's the kind of thing I like. Uh, and obviously, if I don't find that the case is good enough or interesting, I'll just bin it. I'll bin the episode. Uh, so there might be eighteen episodes. There could be sixteen. There could be twenty-two. I don't know. Uh, things change. So um, yeah. I'll I'll keep you up to date with when we're coming up to like penultimate episodes, but we're definitely going to run up until Christmas, hopefully with an episode over Christmas, and then I'll take January off. That really is my my plan. Um, 
But yeah, I enjoy doing the Blackout Ripper. There's loads of really good stories that are going to happen in season two, but there won't be any big parties anymore. But there might be uh, episodes, characters returning from season one. What I might do is start doing episodes where, you know, you, like Dennis Nielsen. Dennis might be coming back in season two. You don't need to listen to the old episodes, but, you know, there'll be a new episode, which will be standalone, but you can listen to the old ones if you'd want to. Um, so, yeah. That was uh, what I've learned. Uh, so, you've heard me waffle for a little while. But really, what I know that you're waiting for is Coot Update. Oh, I know it's been a long time, hasn't it? Um, for those of you, if this is your first time listening to Murder Mile, if this is the first episode, a uh, Coot Update. Because uh, I live on a narrowboat in London, and I move every two weeks to different locations, um, my recordings are normally interrupted by a coot, which is like... Uh, it's smaller than a duck, it's black, and it's got kind of a, a white cap on his head, which is the reason why uh, you say bald as a coot, because it literally is, it looks like he's bald, but really it's not, it's kind of, it's kind of a, uh, an, it's not enamel, is it? I guess it is, it's kind of an enamel cap that he wears. Um, so coot update, when we were doing part four, to, four of the Blackout Ripper, Coot was outside, he was really noisy and aggressive, and he was randy, he was desperate to get his end away. Uh, by the time we got to part six, obviously I'd moved on, but all all the coots are kind of in sync anyway. So coot had had little babies, but they were hidden away. I could hear them going, meep, 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 meep. Uh, by the time episode seven came around, you could see the little coots coming out and they looked like little spiky balls, like little spiky tennis balls with little bright little red noses. And they're really sweet and cute. Um... And the family there had had six, but by the time I'd left, they'd only got two left. Obviously, many get eaten by pikes. Some get killed by swans, because swans are very aggressive. Um, uh, but they'd only got two left. Sometimes the parents kill the weaker ones as well. Uh, but now I'm in, uh, I'm in a new place. I'm heading north. Uh, we've got coots outside. They've got five babies, uh, but they're not babies anymore. They've grown. They're almost adult sized. They're not quite black. They're kind of a silvery black and they're starting to develop their little white flashes on their head, which is really cool. So uh, I'll give you another coot update soon. But at the moment, not much going on. Uh, thought I'd fill you in uh, very recently, like last weekend, uh, when I'm recording this last weekend, we had the true crime podcast meetup in London, which was fantastic, uh, organized by Hannah uh, and also by by Rosie from uh, They Walk Among Us. Um, we met up at the Silver Cross pub in Whitehall in London by uh, Trafalgar Square. Loads of podcasters such as myself, Murder Mile. Hello. Uh, who else was there? My brain's gone. Nothing rhymes with murder. Red handed spree killing it podcast. Uh, Sinead from Mensria, which I kept referring to as Mensria, I apologise, uh, and also lots of um, true crime podcast fans as well. So we got to meet people that listen to our podcast, which is fantastic. Uh, I got to hang out with uh, Duncan, who was my um, quiz partner. We, I think we did all, all right, the baldy bastards, didn't we? We came fifth, but considering there was only two of us on the team, we did quite good. And Lee as well, who come down from Northern Ireland, uh, which is fantastic, met some lovely people. So it was a really good night. And we met a serial killer as well. Uh, everyone who went there uh, knows who I'm talking about. Uh, so that was good fun. So uh, hopefully there'll be another true crime podcast meetup soon. If you're in London uh, or if you're in the UK, we'll let you know in advance. And uh, 
come on over uh, and it would be lovely to meet you all. So, do I have time for this? Uh, okay, I'll uh, do a quick one. Listeners' questions. Uh, obviously, I was going to try and do a uh, extra mile Q and A episode uh, before season two. I thought I might put an episode out, but I realised I was like, do you know what? I need a, I need time to rest, and also I think you need time to rest from Murder Mile as well. So, uh, I asked for some listeners' questions, and here they are. So, Lorraine Ledwell, uh, who actually won one of the competitions on the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group. Uh, Lorraine is one of the few people who actually have Murder Mile, a Murder Mile badge, a Murder Mile sticker, a Murder Mile fridge magnet, and a little thank, written thank you for me as well. Uh, I do competitions on uh, my social media platforms, and Lorraine was one of the lucky winners. <gasps> oh, exciting. So her question was, uh, are there any cases you have started to research and having gone deeper, thought, no, I can't? And for what reason? Thanks for the pod. Big kiss. Oh, love. Big kiss. Lovely. Um, there's no real case that I've gone through where I've gone. I can't do any more because it's too shocking. Um, obviously, uh, I grew up watching horror films. Whether I liked it or not, my older brother uh, used to pin me. I remember him pinning me to the sofa and prying my eyes open with his fingers when I was five years old, uh, forcing me to watch Halloween. And I don't think I've been afraid of anything since then. Uh, so, yeah, there's no real cases where I just go, no, I can't tell it anymore. Even if it is a harsh, like with the baby murderer case that I did episode three. You could tell it as a story of a baby murderer or you could tell it as a, a father with depression and alcoholism who's struggling to help his keep his children alive and from a fate worse than death. So there's always ways to tell a story. The only time I stop with a story is when there's just nothing in there when when i go through the whole case file and just go i just can't tell this story uh an example i was uh doing one of the files i was researching while i was away uh was a story of a series of greek cypriot men in london uh all of them who seemed to be called something like um christoph papadopoulos kyriakos right or variations there there was thereof and all of them seemed to go by the nickname of chris okay there was a whole fleet of them and they spent all of their time going between various cafes owned by greek cypriots all of whom seemed to be either called harry or chris and they go in there they play cards and they drink some tea and they go back and forth and then eventually one of them gets stabbed to death and we're not too sure why and the two men involved the one who got murdered and the one who did the murdering were both in love with a lady called Betty and Betty's not her real name but in the file that any reference to Betty was redacted and also the two men met together to um uh to, to pay a £1,000 uh, bail bond for a guy called Alessandro of which we know nothing more about Alessandro and we don't know why he was in prison or what he's what he's surname was so it's one of those cases where it's just like i have no idea what is going on it's so confusing uh the police even though there was witnesses to the murder it was on old compton street lots of people saw it um there was loads of they asked the people in the greek cypriot community why these two men had fought and why one of them had killed the other and they refused to talk so it's 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 a baffling case so that is the only reason why i would i would literally stop uh, a case uh, and turn it into an episode just if I just can't find enough information 
Obviously, this case may come back in season two or three, depending how much I need to sit down and really think about it. I need to find the angle. And for me, there's not really an emotional angle in it yet. But I hope to find that. So thank you, Lorraine. Uh, another question. This always happens at the end of Extra Mile. I always feel bunged up. I always feel like I'm uh, I'm going to get a cold. And I know people say, are you getting a cold? No, it's just after talking for so long, my, I seem to get a cold. Hmm. I seem to feel bunged up. So next question from uh, Simon Lupton. All the way from Kingston, Jamaica. Ooh, very exotic. Simon's question was, Hi, Mike. Hi, Simon. Your podcasts often make me laugh. Ah, thank you. Despite the nature of the story you are telling, do you go looking for the humour when retelling the story you've researched to make it an easier listen? Or do you think comedy and tragedy are so closely related that there will always be elements elements of both in the story? Keep up the good work. Please. I like that please at the end. That's very good. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that... Do you know what? Uh, comedy and tragedy are so interlinked. And I love irony as well. I don't really... With each of these stories, uh, you know me, I always try and put uh, humour into the story. But what I do is I make a very specific space for it right at the very start. And what I do is, unlike many podcasts... or well, not many podcasts. There's some out there where... They try and make it jokey and they call themselves comedians, but they're not really comedians. And they spend their time going, hey, dude, yeah, she's got a head cut off, dude. She's a dumbass, dude. Hey, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of shite like that. They take the piss out of victims, which is entirely wrong. And it's lazy. It's lazy research. It's lazy storytelling. And people who say that they're comedians aren't comedians. They're just dumbasses. So what I do is I never take the piss out of the victims uh, and I play a very fine line. Um, because this is real people, this is real life, but I do love to put humour in there. So I think a good example for me, I think it was the, the, even though I put in quite an acerbic kind of tone into the podcast about the locations before, obviously I've lived in London for a very long time. Uh, so I, I have, I'm kind of not bitter about London, but I'm kind of, you know, a bit world weary, a bit London weary. So I put that into the, into the podcast. But um, talking about people, some sometimes I, I I can't help but the the comedy has to come through, and that happened with the Richard Rhodes Henley episode about the you know the drunken can, the Canadian sailor with the addiction to wanking. Uh, that was episode seventeen. If you haven't listened to it, please do. And for me, it's like I love euphemisms, and it was almost impossible not to tell a story about a sailor who has an addiction to wanking who's also a chef it's like there's so many euphemisms to do with masturbation and food i was like oh my god i have to do this i actually took a lot out because i'd oh i'd over egged the pudding if you pardon the pun um but yeah no so uh comedy and uh tragedy are so interlinked i loved i love irony and um i've put a couple of this story was hard to tell with comedy in there but i've put in some kind of what just nice phrases phrases that i've put in that really entertain me and uh kind of hopefully will give you a bit of a chuckle but hopefully soon there will be an episode which will allow me just to take the piss have a bit of fun uh so thank you simon lupton uh question from uh jennifer edmondson sweeter i hope i've pronounced your surname wrong is it sweeter or sweeter uh either way i've mispronounced it twice in this whole episode um 
uh, you asked, uh, what is the houseboat community like? Uh, do you go for drinks and such like on neighboring boats? And how long do you stay in one place? Um, good question. Uh, the houseboat community is, is very nice, actually. Um, I think because because we live like the boats currently where I am are nose to nose. So you're literally like your boat's just inches away from the next person. So that you might not always see them, but I always try and pop by and say hi and, you know, uh introduce myself it's, it's a nice friendly neighborly way to be but if you're in town and it's busier instead of being nose to nose you're quite often what we call breast to breast which is literally side by side so if i'm in my kitchen doing the washing up my neighbor could be in their kitchen doing their washing up as well and if you've got because we've both got windows if your curtains are open you're like literally look at you're like in inches from each other's face and the same can happen in bathrooms and bedrooms. You could be showering at the same time. So you have to get on with each other. It's nice to pop over and say hello, introduce each other. And I've made some good friends. Uh, on the stretch of water I'm on now, I'm hoping to see my friend Paul, uh, who's on the stretch of water somewhere. We don't, I don't know where yet. I'll find him. Uh, and he's got a lovely little dog. It's not a terrier, but it's like a li little, a little round kind of white little dog with short hair and it's it's a little bit chubby and it's oh it's so sweet it looks it looks like a little hairy sausage i love i love go every time i see the dog I go, oh hello sir hello hairy sausage which is weird to bump into a man shouting hello hairy sausage anyway that's what i do uh and hopefully my friend andy is up on the stort as well uh so mr sims if you are uh listening to this uh, i'm heading your way i should be either on the, up on the stort or uh heading towards uh up up to where hopefully soon so let me know what direction you're in and we'll do some cheeky beers uh so thank you uh jennifer and final question well two questions from mike featherston hello mike uh you say do you have unfettered access to archive documents uh surely historic documents surely as historic documents there are stringent rules what's to stop a future tycoon excuse me burp say gordon gordon f cummings the third removing or altering documents to sanitize his history and more importantly do you can you really steer your boat with your ass two great questions so um i i don't have unfettered access but i, I do have access to the national archives i have access to other archives as well that i won't discuss because they're kind of smaller more discreet archives where i can get kind of interesting information um, but in the National Archives, um, basically, you pull out a limited amount of files. Uh, it's all documented. It's all done by computer. They put the files in front of you. You sit at a desk. A camera is right above your head. Security are walking around. They get you to empty out your like your bag into a transparent bag before you go in. They check your notebook. They make sure you're not taking papers in and out. Uh, so it's very strict. And you can't you can't mark on any of the documents you can't even lean on a document you you can't take food in with you just in case you accidentally destroy any of the documents or injure them so uh, yes chance of um, um anyone making any changes to any documents is slim especially gordon frederick cummings the third because uh, he wouldn't exist because uh gordon frederick cummings didn't have any children thank god imagine children of the blackout ripper god that would be terrifying uh and the final question from mike is can you really steer your boat with your ass yes i can 
It's a skill I learned very early. Uh, obviously at the back of the boat is a tiller arm. It's kind of like a long arm which comes up from the rudder and you can you hold it to steer. It only takes a little bit of left and right to, to steer uh, 15 tons of steel, uh, which is how much the boat weighs. Uh, you can do it with your hand or the crook of your left arm uh, whilst powering with the right. But what I've learned is you can kind of wedge it between your butt cheeks and then you can just kind of have a cup of tea and enjoy the journey as you go along. So that was the final question. Can I steer the boat with my ass? Yes, I can. So, everyone, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. That was the third version of Extra Mile uh, and the original podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope this has turned out well. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to have to re-record it again, which actually wouldn't be too bad. I quite enjoyed it. So, thank you so much. Next episode, uh, I haven't announced what it's going to be. I'm not going to do that with this season. I'm going to keep it a secret. I might announce it just to Patreon supporters because they're they're paying a little bit of money, so uh, uh, give them a little something extra. Um, but that was extra mile. Hope you enjoyed that, and I'll speak to you all soon. God, I don't know how to end these podcasts i always do that don't i um get in touch with me oh if you have any questions please do get in touch with me on uh any uh either email or any any of my social media forums ask me any questions and i'll put them into extra mile i'll put them into the next episode uh so email me any questions at all i will answer literally anything uh and also tell me how to end these podcasts i don't know how to end it i always do this don't i um what do i do i tell you what uh We'll end it after three. So we'll say one, two, three, and then bye. Okay, we do it together. Ready? One, two, three. Bye! Thank <laughs> you.
Uh, okay, go ahead. Uh, let's uh, have the nominees for True Crime, please. All right. The nominees for Best True Crime Podcast are Beyond Reasonable Doubt. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 